Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Mr. Kleiner. Welcome to the Asia Initiative Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asia Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. For those who are new to the Institute of World Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctoral program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have a fascinating speaker, Mr. Bruce Kleiner, who will be presenting a lecture on the Biden administration faces growing North Korean threat. Mr. Kleiner specializes in Korean and Japanese affairs as the senior research fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. He has testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He's a frequent com commentator in US and foreign media. His articles and commentary have appeared in major American and foreign publications, and he's a regular guest on broadcasts and cable news outlets. He's a regular contributor to the international and security sections of the Daily Signal. From 1996 to 2001, Mr. Klingner was CIA's Deputy Division Chief for Korea, responsible for an, the analysis political, for, sorry, responsible for the analysis of political, military, economic, and leadership issues for the President of the United States and other senior U.S. policymakers. In 1993 to 1994, he was the Chief of CIA's Korea branch, which analyzed military developments during during a nuclear crisis in North Korea. Mr. Bruce Kleiner, welcome very much and thank you for uh, joining us today and I'll hand it over to you. Right. Well, thanks very much and uh, thank you all for attending. Um, I'll get to the Biden administration policy, uh, but first I'm gonna spend a, a, a bit of time on the, the North Korean threat, which is varied and uh, includes nuclear missile as well as cyber. Uh, and then I'm gonna discuss sort of US policy in general, and then eventually get to the, to the Biden policy, which although they uh, still are completing their North Korea policy review, I, I think there's some indications as to where it may or may not go. And, and there's some knowns and, and unknowns. So, uh, you know, first of all, I think it's useful to, for context to look at the North Korean threat. And, you know, just to emphasize that even in the intelligence community, there, the, the threat assessment are estimates. There, there are best guesses. There are uh, you know, a series of assessments that eventually come up with a number of how many nuclear weapons do you think they have or how far along are they on a certain program. But you know, North Korea is known as the hardest of the hard target for very good reason. Uh, when I shifted over to work North Korea, I had come from working uh, the Soviet Union. And in retrospect, the Soviet Union was an open book compared to North Korea. Each of the sources of intelligence uh, has almost unique uh, constraints when it comes to North Korea. With, with imagery, they put a lot of uh, their facilities underground. Uh, and then also there's terrain masking, where uh, you know, if you think of 
if you fly a Cessna plane over a, a town in Kansas, which is very flat, if you fly over three different times, you can see the entire city three times. Whereas if you're flying a Cessna down the, the valleys of uh, Manhattan of the skyscrapers, you can't see what's on the other side of the skyscraper. And in a way, the Korea work in a, in a similar way. And, and sig signal intelligence has a lot of constraints because of encryption and landlines and human sources. Uh, it's hard to run agents in, in North Korea, even for South Korea. So uh, it's a lot of difficulties. Um, and just some observations on the threat or the threat assessments. What I found over the, the years or the decades is there's been a tendency by a lot of folks to, to underestimate North Korea's capabilities, to, to downplay it or even dismiss it. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is just sort of a, a dismissive attitude towards North Korea. There's sort of that, well, isn't North Korea a joke? I, I just saw a cartoon with Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il depicted as a baby playing with missiles as toys. So they can't really be a threat, right? Or just sort of a, a condescending view of, well, they couldn't possibly do something so sophisticated as nuclear weapons or cyber attack capabilities. Uh, and I remember after the 2014 Sony hack that North Korea did uh, against Sony Pictures, uh, I was doing a lot of TV interviews and there was a lot of disbelief by the announcers and frequently they would put up the fairly famous nighttime satellite photo of North Korea and the surrounding countries at night where South Korea, Japan and cities in China were ablaze with lights and North Korea was basically a black hole except some lights in Pyongyang. And they would say, well, if they can't even keep the lights on, they can't possibly be capable of cyber attack or nuclear weapons. Well, they, they can. They just prioritize military over the civilian life. Um, another aspect of being dismissive is that North Korea hasn't yet proved something, and therefore they don't have it. Um, and some of that is politically or ideologically uh, driven in that it would be inconvenient if North Korea had that capability or was working toward that capability because it would either mean they're cheating or it would make diplomacy difficult if they're already working towards a certain program. So I think a lot of times people have underestimated or been surprised when North Korea does something, whereas experts who have been following it for quite some time will see it as, yeah, we've, we've been predicting this, we've been following it. Um, maybe they went quicker or slower than we had predicted, but yeah, it's not unexpected. Um, so how this has sort of uh, manifested itself over the years is back in the 1990s, uh, some people were dismissive of North Korea's plutonium-based nuclear weapons program. Uh, even some government agencies were saying, well, you can't prove they have plutonium fissile material, so therefore we will say they don't have it. Uh, during the George W. Bush administration, uh, there was a lot of resistance to North Korea having uh, highly enriched uranium, that first it was an uh, you know, just an invention of George Bush, uh, or uh, when the evidence was becoming more and more public, people would say, well, it, it's not cheating because it's not a program. It's a program to develop a program, uh, which is sort of like saying it's just, it's just a small bank robbery, so it's not bad, or it's a conspiracy to commit a crime, not the crime itself, but a conspiracy is itself a crime. Uh, then in 2007, when Israel bombed a facility in Syria, which turned out to be a nuclear reactor uh, that was being partially built by North Korea or with North Korean assistance, 
Uh, some people were dismissive saying that uh, it was a, a SCUD missile storage site. It couldn't possibly be a reactor because that would be proliferation by North Korea. Uh, then we, we had debates over, does North Korea have the capability to miniaturize a nuclear device into a nuclear weapon to put it on, on missiles? Uh, then we had debates over that North Korea's ICBMs couldn't possibly reach the United States, uh, or some would say, well, they can only reach Hawaii or Alaska, which were part of the United States. Uh, and then we saw some indications, of, and rocket scientists did some amazing uh, analysis based on just photos of, of rocket, uh, static rocket engine tests from the size and shape and color of the flames indicate it was a new kind of fuel and oxidizer and that, yes, it could actually reach the entire continental US. Uh, and people were assessing that a year before they did some ICBM tests in 2017, where even though they did it to very high lofted trajectories so that it wouldn't fly over Japan, when people did the extrapolation of the range, it indicated that the first test could reach half of the continental US and the the test later in 2017 could reach all the way down to Florida and beyond. And kind of a current debate people have is that, well, they haven't demonstrated that they have a survivable reentry vehicle, that we don't know or we can't prove that North Korea's warheads could survive the, the parabolic trajectory and reentry back into the Earth's atmosphere. And again, I think it's just sort of downplaying or dismissing uh, the threat. So where are they with their nukes and missiles? Uh, again, it, it's the best estimate. What we saw was uh, in 2017, there were some leaked US intelligence documents where uh, a defense intelligence agency and a CIA leaked estimates where uh, the intel community is saying that North Korea likely had between 30 and 60 nuclear weapons. There was some debate as to whether it was perhaps 30 actual weapons and fissile material for another 30 were um, somewhere in between. And that was higher than some outside non-government agency, non-government organization, or think tank estimates were. And also those documents said that uh, North Korea was likely able to produce another seven to 12 weapons worth of fissile material every year. So another tendency we've seen is over the years, people will tend to take one number and then just carry it forward until there's some new number. So 10 years ago, some think tank might have said, well, they have five or 10. And then people will just quote that report for years without really updating it because there's no new information. So at least according to the intel community, uh, North Korea had perhaps 30 to 60 nuclear weapons back in 2017 with the ability to produce seven to 12 weapons worth of material since then. Now, as for their missiles, uh, with the ICBMs, as I said, in 2017, they demonstrated the ability to reach all of the continental US with, with an ICBM, which would be nuclear capable. So they can put a nuclear warhead anywhere in the continental US. Uh, last year in October, they paraded an even larger ICBM. Now, since they can already reach all of the US with the existing uh, ICBMs, the only reason to have a larger ICBM would be to carry multiple warheads. And Kim Jong-un a few months later announced, yes, they're working towards a ICBM. So that is worrisome because the US only has 44 ground-based interceptors in Alaska and California to intercept incoming North Korean ICBMs. 
And the U.S. has said we would likely fire several, perhaps four, at each incoming warhead or each incoming ICBM. So that limits the, the number of uh, incoming North, North Korean warheads and missiles that we could target. So if they can put several warheads on a single missile, it could overwhelm our missile defenses. Another worrisome uh, development in that October parade was that North Korea showed that they can indigenously produce these very large uh, transporter erector launchers for the ICBMs, which are mobile. They, they go out on the roads and they can fire from any sort of firm road, not, not every little dirt road, but uh, so they can go out into the field where it's harder for the US or South Korean intelligence sources to find them. So up until then, they had been limited in the number of mobile launchers by uh, the number of, of very large Chinese logging trucks that they had purchased. I think it was six. Uh, so the Chinese logging trucks are to carry very large logs or very large ICBMs. Uh, and North Korea kept sort of lengthening these, these launchers, adding axles until, um, you know, in, to accommodate the different ICBMs that they were developing. But it was the same limited number of launchers uh, or transporter launchers. Uh, but so by showing that they had, in addition to those uh, Chinese modified launchers that they could produce their own, it also could risk overwhelming U.S. missile defenses because more of them can go out into the field. So sort of think of it, if you had a lot of bullets, but you only had one six shooter and you could only carry one pistol out into the, to the field against the enemy, you have to run back to headquarters to get more bullets. Well, if you can carry two or three or more uh, pistols, then you can carry more bullets without having to run back and reload. So that was, was very worrisome. So uh, they have not yet tested that very large ICBM, but that's something that we, we worry that they might, because North Korea traditionally has done something very highly provocative, such as a nuclear test or an ICBM test, the first year of a U.S. and South Korean administration. So it would be expected they would do something to test the Biden administration as they tested the Trump and Bush and South Korean administrations. Uh, on other missiles shorter range than ICBM, they've demonstrated they have an intermediate range missile that can easily reach Guam, where we have critical U.S. bases there, which would be uh, in support of any kind of military operations in Northeast Asia, including on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, they also have a, a, a lot of different medium range and short range missiles that can uh, threaten all of Japan and all of South Korea, including U.S. forces and citizens stationed there or living there. Uh, and those are likely uh, nuclear capable or some of them are nuclear capable as well. In 2019, North Korea revealed five new short range missile systems, each one an improvement over previous missiles. Uh, and they're all mobile. And one of them has a maneuverable trajectory, which might be able to evade missile defenses in South Korea. And then just a, a week or so ago, they demonstrated yet another new short range missile, uh, which seems to be another one that could have a maneuverable trajectory. So another worrisome development. So they have a lot of missiles. They're increasingly more capable uh, and they, increasingly can either evade or overwhelm missile defenses in South Korea and perhaps in the future, the continental US. Uh, so all very worrisome developments. Uh, another threat is cyber. 
and that is one that people often overlook or, or downplay for the reasons I said before. Um, and uh, Kim Jong-il, when he was the leader, uh, he said, cyber attacks are like atomic bombs. War is won and lost by who has greater access to the adversary's military technical information in peacetime. So we know that North Korea uh, sees military applications for cyber going against uh, the US and South Korean, there's called infocentric kind of warfare, our, our reliance on GPS satellites for targeting, our precision guided munitions. So very heavily infocentric, uh, electronic, uh, all interconnected in, in networks. So if North Korea targets our ability to uh, transfer or interconnect weapon systems and sensors through cyber, uh, they see that as a very uh, asymmetric ability to attack the US and South Korean ability to wage war against North Korea during a conflict. Uh, Kim Jong-un, the current leader, declared that cyber warfare is a magic weapon and an all-purpose sword that guarantees the North Korean People's Armed Forces ruthless striking capability along with nuclear weapons and missiles. So North Korea has thousands of what they call cyber war warriors, perhaps 6,800 is, is one estimate from several years ago. Uh, and they have targeted a, a wide range of uh, targets really throughout the world. And I'll, I'll get into some of the, the phases of those. Um, and although in a way, a lot of them are uh, sort of the, you know, you, you receive an email, please click on this uh, malicious malware to upload uh, systems that can undermine your computer system. They're, they're much more sophisticated than that. Uh, so technically they can get into computer systems, uh, but also they have what are called social engineering programs where they will convince people basically to click on a link, click on a document. Uh, and you would think it, it, you know, people are too smart for that, but uh, it, it's actually very effective because they go through a, a lot of different approaches. Um, they've will go, they'll approach say defense uh, or military experts and say, hi, I'm from say Rand or some other uh defense contractor, or defense firm, or we're from Boeing, uh, you know, we think you could, you know, be a good addition to our company. And they would have created LinkedIn profiles and, and other uh, sort of job searching or human resources profiles. So it really looks like it's coming from Boeing or some other defense contractor. They will even uh, call prospective employees and speak in perfect English and everything just seems fine or they will you know, gain access to someone's computer and then use that as a way of sort of winning the, the trust of someone else. Um, and we've seen that even against experts on North Korea. They've targeted many of us uh, and they've been successful sometimes because they will uh, look like they are coming from another expert that we all know uh, or even a, a college classmate uh, where they'll, they'll mimic uh, the email address, they'll mimic uh, the kind of messages that that person sent, uh, et cetera. So um, they, they are becoming very successful in the social engineering. So they've gained access to uh, governments, militaries, uh, infrastructure networks, financial networks, banks, et cetera. So how good are they at this? Uh, the US and South Korea 
uh, governments and intelligence agencies have said North Korea is in the top three or four countries in the world, along with China and Russia and perhaps Iran. So they are very good at this. Um, the U.S. government has warned that North Korea's illicit cyber activities threaten the United States and the broader international community, and in particular, pose a significant threat to the integrity and stability of the international financial system. Uh, and that Pyongyang has developed the capability to conduct disruptive or destructive cyber activities affecting U.S. critical infrastructure. So North Korea has gone through sort of different phases uh, in their cyber attacks. The, the beginning was uh, sort of espionage. They were trying to get into governments and military websites to steal information, um, as well as a series of disruptive attacks through uh, uh, distributed denial of services or DDoS attacks where they would overwhelm a website by uh, in getting malware onto thousands of computers uh, that are then overwhelming the websites of, of their targets. So they, for example, got into highly restricted US military websites and got access to our war plan called Operations Plan 5015 for how we would respond to an all out North Korean attack. Uh, they gained access to other uh, contingency or war plans for uh, other operations short of an all out war. They've stolen technology from South Korean defense contractors. Sort of the list goes on and on. The next phase we saw was cyber terrorism. And I mentioned the Sony hack. And what that was is in response to uh, a movie called The Interview with Seth Rogen and, and James Franco, which made fun of Kim Jong un. Well, North Korea takes anything that they see as an insult, it's the leadership very seriously. So they hacked into Sony Pictures. They uh, got access to thousands of personal employee computers. They got access to, uh, and, and they just, they, even though the purpose was to try to prevent the release of that movie, and they had, um, they threatened not only to release the information of uh, sort of embarrassing or, or proprietary information from these websites or the computers and the websites, um, they, they went ahead and did it anyway, even though Sony said, we won't show the movie uh, in theaters. Because along with the, the hack, North Korea also issued attacks to inflict 9-11 style attacks on any theater that showed that movie. Uh, and that fulfilled the legal definition for international terrorism. So that was one reason that North Korea eventually went, was put back on the uh, state sponsors of terrorism list. So even though they didn't show the movie in the theaters, North Korea still went ahead and, and destroyed a lot of uh, Sony computers. They released the information, proprietary unreleased films and uh, contract and, and salary information. Um, and when that information was, was made public or that attack was made public, uh, it led other organizations to cancel what would have been perceived as anti-Kim entertainment shows. So there was going to be a Steve Carroll movie about North Korea that was canceled uh, because the other film producer was nervous about what North Korea might do. Uh, and also a, a British TV series that was gonna be set in North Korea. That was also canceled because they were fearful of what North Korea might do. Um, there was also the next phase would be ransom where they got in, in an operation called WannaCry, which was worldwide. Uh, they would in, inflict malware or ransomware on computers and said, okay, you can't, get access to your computer anymore unless you pay us money. 
uh, they actually didn't make a lot of money through some mistakes on their own, but they uh, inflicted on the computers around the world. They really brought the, the United Kingdom's National Health Service to its knees. They were uh, in, causing a lot of problems for hospitals, ambulance services, et cetera. Uh, they also had a ransomware attacks on South Korean nuclear power plants, uh, where they threatened to um, bring the nuclear power plants to a standstill or, or do some damage to them if they didn't pay money. Uh, then, really, the latest big shift is cybercrime. They've gone. They've first gone after banks and traditional financial institutions. And then cyber exchanges, which with cyber currency, which are easier targets, softer. Uh, and then now they're going after decentralized finance platforms or DEFIs. Um, so the UN panel of experts has estimated that they've acquired at least $2 billion from these cyber crimes. Uh, I think that's a, an underestimate. I've been doing research for a while on all these aspects of cyber. Uh, and even though I've been following North Korea for a long time, I was amazed at, at how much they've done until I really started digging into it. So the, one of the most famous early cases was uh, with the Bank of Bangladesh, uh, where they were able to do a cyber bank robbery, and they stole $81 million. They forced transfers through the, uh, the Bangladesh Bank's accounts in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And they would have gotten away with another $851 million uh, if a very alert bank employee hadn't noticed some typos. So they're going for about a million, a billion dollars uh, in that cyber bank robbery. Uh, but they got away with, with uh, 81 million. But since then, they've gone after countless banks and financial institutions. So they're able to um, transfer the money through international financial transfer networks, including it's called SWIFT. Uh, they've even worked in conjunction with local criminal groups in 30 different countries uh, to get money from ATMs, where they've been able to get into the computer systems uh, and create fake ATM cards, which then the bank will perceive as legitimate. And they were able to get millions of dollars as these criminals went to ATM uh, machines in 30 different countries. Uh, they've also gone after cyber exchanges and cyber currency, Bitcoin and other alternative currencies. Uh, and then now these uh, decentralized finance platforms, which are even more anonymous and more automatic in that you don't have to have uh, humans even uh, interacting on these uh, transfers. So sort of think of it like if you're at a, an airport and you're transfer or you're uh, transitioning money from dollars into a foreign currency, uh, and it's all anonymous. It's just a machine. There's no uh, keeping track of who you are. So it's a, it's a, a way of money laundering. Uh, and re more recently, they've gone after pharmaceuticals. They've, they've hacked into, we don't know if successfully or not, Pfizer and other pharmaceuticals that are working on COVID uh, vaccines. And we don't know if that's to steal the, the information for the vaccines to make it themselves uh, for their own citizens, or whether it's to steal the proprietary information to sell it perhaps to a Chinese pharmaceutical, uh, but they, they have gone after uh, pharmaceuticals. They've also gone after uh, government ministries of health uh, that are working on COVID. And also they see COVID relief as another way of making money. They'll uh, mimic uh, organizations that are 
legitimately in COVID relief, but they'll use it as a way of, of money from people saying, we're from the government, we're here to help you to send money and we'll send you the vaccine. Um, so, uh, and they've also gone after even cyber security experts that have fallen uh, prey to these kind of social engineering. Now, uh, you know, all of this is worrisome because they've stolen information, they, they've committed malware, they, cyber attacks, cyber terrorism, et cetera. But it's even more worrisome if you think of what they could do in a crisis. So either hostilities on the Korean Peninsula or the run-up to a crisis, or just if they want to uh, inflict a crisis on, on the world. They've shown that they can penetrate even highly secure, very deep computer networks of governments, and militaries, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, infrastructure sites, um, financial institutions, Federal Reserve banks, et cetera. So think of what they could do if they want to do more than just sort of testing or reconnaissance by fire as they've done so far. So they could target the uh, US and South Korean uh, militaries, the, the info-centric way we would try to respond to any kind of North Korean uh, attacks, uh, either major attacks or, or uh, tactical level attacks uh, against the South. Uh, they could go after precision guided munitions, GPS, et cetera. We've seen over the years, they've They've jammed GPS signals for hundreds of airplanes flying into uh, airports in Seoul. They could do that against military planes and military uh, munitions. Uh, they could do massive bank robberies or even target the integrity of international financial systems. If they did malware against cyber uh, or against financial institutions, whether they ever wanted to get the, the money to re release control or just uh, prevent access to financial institutions, that could really have a major impact on the international financial system. Infrastructure, uh, electrical grids, nuclear power plants, transportation, uh, hospital facilities, air traffic control, supply chains. Uh, South Korea's intelligence service revealed that North Korea had developed uh, a Trojan program, a Trojan horse program to take over computer networks and the, of power supply systems including power stations, substations throughout South Korea. Uh, and in 2014, North Korean hackers uh, started targeting railroad companies and airlines, uh, and they specifically targeted an automated operating system that controls trains speed. So there's a, a lot of things they could do uh, in addition to kinetic military threats. Now, let's turn to US policy. So sir, some general observations. So not only is North Korea a very difficult intelligence problem, it's a very difficult foreign and national security problem or policy problem. So a lot of very smart people have been trying to solve the various North Korean problems for decades. Uh, so it's, it's not, there's not a simple solution out there. Uh, it could be one of those unsolvable problems for foreign policy and security policy. And another thing is, as we look at individual administrations, policies, and either praise or critique them. No U.S. political party or U.S. administration has a monopoly on good or bad ideas when it comes to North Korea. So there are things we can fault. They were too hard. They were too soft, uh, or they were both at different times. Uh, but it's extremely difficult problem. So one thing that long-term Korea watchers tend to, to be is, is both pessimistic and, and cynical. We, we've, we've seen it all before. So when someone will say, 
these old ideas haven't worked. We need bold new thinking. Chances are we've already tried that. Uh, so when someone will say, whether it's an outside expert or in the government, when uh, say the Biden administration saying they're gonna have a policy that's different from every previous policy, well, well, we'll wait and see what it is, but it's likely gonna be using the same tools and the same instruments and national power that other administrations did, perhaps in a different combination or different prioritization to the tools. Uh, but it's pretty unlikely it's going to be something that no one has uh, previously thought of. So, again, sometimes when you see someone say, well, you know, we have a bold new idea, this, this will solve things. Uh, no, one, it hasn't been tried before. And us old timers will tend to look at each other and say, yeah, remember when we did that in 2009? Oh, yeah, 2001, 1997, 1994. So um, we, we've been around the block a few times with, with North Korea. Now, a, a common debate we have on policy, uh, which is really a false paradigm of should we do diplomacy or sanctions, or engagement or pressure? And, and that's like saying, you know, which tool should you use to build a house? Do you use a hammer or a screwdriver? Well, you use both, along with a whole bunch of other tools. Sometimes one's more appropriate, sometimes another is, is appropriate, but you need them all. So there's this, this false uh, debate. And even if in a panel conference or other event, if we've, we sort of put it in a context of, okay, so today's event is on sanctions, but of course we need to have a comprehensive integrated strategy using all the instruments of national power, dime, diplomatic information, military, economic, uh, you know, we use all of them together. So now let's talk about sanctions. And then usually the first answer is, oh, so you want to do sanctions. That means you don't believe in diplomacy. Well, that's not the case. Um, so another sort of false statement we have is, or a false characterization is, well, sanctions by themselves haven't worked. Well, no one said they should be done by themselves, just as we're not saying we should only do diplomacy or we should only do military deterrence. You use all the tools, but you often see sanctions by themselves haven't worked, so we should abandon and try something which has never been tried before, which is diplomacy, like the eight failed agreements we've had, the international community has had with North Korea, all of which failed. Um, so, and also there's that standard that's applied to sanctions that is applied to diplomacy. So, well, sanctions haven't gotten North Korea to abandon every one of its nuclear weapons, so let's, let's eliminate all sanctions. Well, again, diplomacy hasn't worked either. That's not to say we don't keep trying for a ninth agreement or a tenth or whatever, uh, but hopefully you learn from some of the mistakes of the past. Also, sanctions are often depicted as only having one purpose, which is to alter North Korean behavior to get them to abandon their nuclear program. Well, sanctions and targeted financial measures and law enforcement measures, which are all kind of come under this rubric of sanctions, have a number of objectives. And I would say there, there are five main objectives. Uh, the first two is to enforce UN resolutions and US laws. If they mean anything, you have to enforce them. Uh, the second is to impose a penalty or a pain on those that violate laws or, or resolutions. You rob a bank, you go to jail. There's a penalty for that. Just because there's still some people who rob banks doesn't mean you rip up the laws against bank robberies. The, the third objective is that it, uh, if not eliminates, it constrains or makes more difficult or raises the cost of North Korea importing items they need for their uh, nuclear and missile programs, which are prohibited by the UN resolutions. Uh, 
including money from illicit activities. You're trying to curtail the items they need from the outside world, uh, technical or money from money laundering or illicit activities that they use for the nuclear and missile programs. The fourth objective would be to try to prevent or at least constrain proliferation uh, of nuclear and missile items or components or technology. And then the fifth, in conjunction with diplomacy and everything else, is you're trying to get them to moderate behavior, to obey U.S. laws, to obey U.N. resolutions. Um, another aspect against sanctions or, or targeted financial measures is that not all sanctions are the same. And I would make a big distinction between U.N. sanctions and U.S. sanctions. U.N. sanctions uh, are more easily undone. You can get the five permanent members of the Security Council to change their mind tomorrow. And if everyone agreed, you can alter, remove, modify the sanctions. U.S. sanctions are mostly U.S. law. Some are executive orders, uh, but some are U.S. law. So you would it would require the U.S. Congress to change U.S. law to alter the U.S. sanctions. Um, and, and really on a very strongly bipartisan basis, there's not a mood in, in Congress uh, to relax the pressure on North Korea. In 2016, when uh, the U.S. Congress passed the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, the vote was uh, 96 to 2 in the Senate, and I believe 408 to 2 or, uh, in, in the House of Representatives. I may be a little bit off there. Uh, a year later, when they passed another bill, it was 98 to 0 and 409 to 1, I think. Uh, in the Senate and the House. So, uh, and since then, with North Korea doing a number of, of nuclear and missile tests, um, there's not really a mood in either political party to relax pressure on North Korea. Another difference uh, between the UN and US sanctions is UN sanctions are predominantly on their nuclear and missile programs. Uh, so, we keep adding resolutions whenever North Korea violates the previous resolutions. So, we're up to 11 UN resolutions now against the nuclear and missile programs. Uh, and so that, according to those resolutions, North Korea is not only precluded from doing a nuclear test or an ICBM test, but a, precluded from doing any missile test of any range if it uses ballistic missile technology, even if it's a short range. Also, the continued existence of the WMD, uh, not only nuclear, but also biological chemical warfare programs and the missile programs, the continued existence are themselves violations because the UN has called on them to abandon those programs in a comprehensive, verifiable, irreversible manner. So when you hear of CVID or that dismantlement, uh, it's not just a US negotiating position, it's a requirement under the 11 UN resolutions. The US sanctions are not only about nuclear and missile, but also about a range of other issues, human rights, uh, as well as criminal activities such as counterfeiting of our currency or money laundering um, or, or other crimes. Now, one thing about, uh, say, money laundering, when people will think, well, how can we sanction a North Korean entity? We don't do any trade with North Korea, so sanctioning a company or, or an entity can't have any possible effect. Well, it, it can. And what that is is based on a couple of things. The, the vast majority of all international financial transactions in the world are denominated in dollars. And because of that, they have to go by law through a US Treasury Department regulated bank in the United States. 
So if you send money, if you wire or transfer money from Paris to London, it actually goes through New York. It doesn't seem like it, but it does because it's not going to be denominated in euros. It's likely going to be denominated in dollars. So we know from the UN panel of experts that the majority of Chinese and North Korean and other uh, financial transactions are still denominated in dollars. So they're coming through US banks. So therefore, if they are doing money laundering or other crimes, it's a US crime in the US financial system on US soil. So what happens is people will have correspondent accounts. So again, with the Paris to London, it would be if you were in Paris, your French bank has, a, has an account or a correspondent account or a branch in New York. The British bank has a correspondent account or a branch in New York. And it sort of goes through that way. Uh, it's all very transparent to you. You don't realize it's, it's going through New York. Anyway, that gives us the authority to uh, broker or monitor or impose sanctions on North Korean and other entities that are violating US law. So those who are, are breaking the law and money laundering and, and other crimes, we can impose fines. Uh, the Obama administration impo imposed $8 billion uh, in fines on British and French banks for money laundering for Iran. Uh, so far, we've imposed $0 on Chinese banks for in fines for money laundering for North Korea. Uh, we can also identify an entity as a primary money laundering concern, which means they can't access the U.S. financial system. And for a financial institution, that's the kiss of death because no one will want to interact with you because they are fearful of also being uh, sanctioned if they engage with you in, unbeknownst to them, illicit activity. Um, so when people say we ought to reduce U.S. sanctions, so well, which ones? The, those against human rights violations, those against cr criminal activity. Um, and if you say, well, eliminate all U.S. sanctions, it would be, okay, so money laundering will remain a crime except if you're North Korea. Or committing crimes against humanity, as the UN says uh, North Korea is, is, is a human rights violation or crime uh, except if you're North Korean. Well, that doesn't work. Um, the thing about UN sanctions is not only are they more easily undone, um, because a lot of them in recent years have, have imposed constraints on North Korean economic activity, they're, they're, they're more negotiable. They're, they're more um, able to be sliced and diced. So for example, in negotiations, if North Korea were to uh, abandon five nuclear weapons or to um, demobilize or, or deactivate a certain number of production facilities, then they could be allowed to export X hundred thousand tons more of oil or, or import oil or export coal. So I think the UN sanctions are more fungible, they're more uh, negotiable, and th those are the ones that could be uh, included in denuclearization negotiations or arms control negotiations with North Korea, as opposed to the U.S. sanctions, which are harder to undo uh, and deal with a lot more issues than just nuclear and, and missile. Um, so turning to the Biden policy, um, there's, there's known and unknowns. Uh, what we've seen from statements by Biden before he was elected and after he was elected, as well as some other officials, um, I think probably the biggest change we'll see, at least in the near term, is U.S. policy toward South Korea and other allies. So Biden and others have said they will return to what has been a 
longstanding traditional bipartisan US view of uh, alliances as based on common principles, common values, common objectives, uh, rather than the Trump administration's view, which is seeing them as transactional relationships. So what we saw in what are called special measures agreement negotiations, where uh, it determines the level of host nation support or the amount of money that allies reimburse a percentage of the cost of stationing US forces overseas. Um, it, it, what we've done is in previous negotiations, the allies would every usually five years uh, add an incremental increase. Under the Trump administration, we were seeking a 400% or a 500% increase from South Korea and Japan, uh, which was more than that, which would have covered more than the cost of stationing our forces overseas. Having our forces overseas is in U.S. national strategic interests. Uh, you know, during isolationism of the 1930s, going back into the castle, raising the drawbridge didn't work very well. Isolationism doesn't work. Um, and it's like having policemen walking the beat in a bad neighborhood rather than sitting back at headquarters. Uh, it's better to have the policemen or U.S. forces out in potentially bad areas because it deters either criminals or bad actors from doing things. So it's cheaper to prevent a war than it is to fight a war. So uh, under the previous administration, we were seeking to make a profit uh, off of our sons and daughters stationed overseas. So. Um, the Biden administration has said they're not going to do that. They're going to go back to a traditional view. And we've seen um, a at least preliminary completion of SMA negotiations with South Korea and Japan. There hasn't been an official release of what the, the number is, but it's likely a 13% increase in South Korea's contribution uh, rather than 400 or 500%. And that's what South Korea was offering two years ago. Um, I think we'll also see the Biden administration try to become more involved in improving relations between our critically important allies, South Korea and Japan. During the Biden, I'm sorry, the Obama administration, uh, when there was a previous uh, flare up of tensions between Seoul and Tokyo, US officials got uh, pretty involved in behind the scenes uh, activity with both capitals. Uh, sending pretty stern private messages to both Tokyo and Seoul on history issues, trying to, if not solve, at least bring some resolution uh, of the history issues, which was impeding on uh, not only the bilateral relations between Seoul and Tokyo, but the ability to have trilateral coordination with the United States, addressing the common threats of, South, of North Korea and China. So, uh, Tony Blinken, Kurt Campbell, and others, and even uh, then Vice President Biden, uh, got personally involved. And that, in part, led to the Comfort Women Agreement of December 2015. Um, so during the, the more recent flare-up, the Trump administration was largely hands-off in trying to um, ameliorate the tensions between our two allies. And I, I think the Biden administration is going to try to get involved, not as a as a public arbiter judge on which country uh, is correct on history or which country has done the correct or incorrect response to another action, but behind the scenes trying to reduce tension, at least reach some kind of resolution to push the history issue to the back burner so we can address the, the growing and very dangerous threats that we all face. Um, 
Biden and others have also said there's going to be a, a return to the traditional bottom-up approach of policymaking and reaching out to North Korea. So the bottom-up meaning you have diplomats try to engage with North Korea, try to make progress uh, on detailed arms control or denuclearization agreements. Uh, and then if you have progress or you've made enough progress that uh, you need very senior intervention, then you would have a summit as opposed to having the top-down approach under the Trump administration. Um, so I, I was against that approach, but at least it did put to the test um, the idea that some had was since the North Korean leader is the only one who can make decisions in North Korea, uh, you have to have the two leaders get together and that's the only way to solve the problem. Well, we got the leaders together and it didn't lead to solving the nuclear and other issues. So uh, I'm in favor of a bottom-up approach where you have very detailed comprehensive agreements uh, as we did arms control treaties with the, the Soviet Union um, rather than very vague short agreements as we've had in the past with, with North Korea. Um, the, but two large unknowns, and this will I'll bring this to an end and I look forward to your, your questions. I think two big unknowns of what the Biden administration policy on North Korea will be are what would be the parameters of an acceptable agreement and how firmly or fully will they enforce UN resolutions and US law? So right now there's a, a debate amongst Korea watchers as to either maintaining the denuclearization objective that's required under the UN resolutions or saying North Korea will never abandon their nuclear weapons. So give up on that and instead go for uh, a partial or, or incomplete agreement that's arms control, that's capping the problem, limiting the problem. We can get into that debate and questions and answers if you want. Uh, but so far, the Trump administration, including Secretary Blinken during this recent trip to Asia, uh, had said that the objective will continue to be denuclearization. Now, that doesn't mean, as, as some have depicted, denuclearization as uh, we don't give any benefits whatsoever until North Korea has cut up the last nuclear weapon and last missile and, and, all of the, and destroyed all the production facilities. Any agreement, whether it's arms control or, or a larger denuclearization, would have to be implemented incrementally. So the difference is, uh, the way I see it is, it, it's like if you think of American football, it's like a hundred yard agreement where because we've had a lot of failed agreements and we or all sides think the other cheat, cheated, like with the arms control treaties, and I was a member of the arms, one arms control delegation in Europe and head of the arms control staff at CIA, um, you, you define the parameters of the field, you define what a football is, you define what the referee's responsibilities are, you define everything so you can't be accused of cheating. Now, you define the end goal of that's the end zone or that's denuclearization, and that's all the benefits that, North, that the US will provide. But even though it's a 100-yard agreement, you implement it in five-yard increments. Um, others would say that's never going to happen. So instead, just negotiate a five-yard agreement. And if everyone's happy with that, then you uh, negotiate a second five-yard, another and another. It, it's a good debate we can have. So far, the administration has said that they are maintaining denuclearization uh, as the end goal. But we don't know what benefits they would give to North Korea, in which order, what the linkages would be, uh, would they accept incremental agreements? So we don't know yet. And even when they release the, the 
North Korea policy, uh, I think they'll keep a lot of cards close to the chest because they don't want to negotiate in public. They want to get to the table with North Korea. Unfortunately, North Korea has continued to reject repeated off uh, requests from the Biden administration as well as Trump and previous administrations for dialogue. The other thing we don't know is how firmly will they enforce sanctions. So uh, each administration in the U.S. has, has underachieved in fulfilling even uh, fully enforcing U.S. laws. So uh, the Trump administration said they had maximum pressure. It was never maximum. President Trump in uh, 2018 said there are 300 North Korean entities he's not sanctioning because we're talking so nicely to North Korea. That would be 300 entities violating U.S. law in the U.S. financial system on U.S. soil for which we have evidence and we're not uh, sanctioning them because we're talking. And, and there's not a long list of other things we didn't do. The Biden administration didn't fully enforce laws. Bush did things. You know, we can go into that in, in Q&A. Um, so we don't know how they will apply sanctions, whether they'll see it as a diplomatic tool or a law enforcement tool. So anyway, I've gone on for a very long time, but uh, I look forward to your, your questions. Thank you, Mr. Klinger, for such an insightful lecture. And we'll take questions now. So if you have questions, please type them in in the Q&A chat box. First question is, as a world policy expert, do you think the loose behavior of Trump in handling North Korea has contributed to the current agony? I'm sorry, the what behavior of Trump? Loose behavior? Well, I. I think it was counterproductive, uh, both the very threatening language in 2017, um, the, the sort of the verbal threats and the or verbal uh, attacks. Uh, I, I don't think that's useful. Uh, North Korea always does it, but I don't think we, we need to kind of go down the path of, of name calling. Um, also with the threats of a preventive attack, which is different from US, normal US strategy, which is either retaliatory attacks or a preemptive attack. If we have very good intelligence that someone is about to attack us, we may go first. Uh, preventive attack was threatening to attack North Korea to prevent them from completing an ICBM program, which they likely had already completed. It, it brought us very close to war, as the president said and other senior officials said, um, closer to war perhaps than 1994 or 1976 axe murders, whatever. I, that was not productive. Uh, the other, I feel it was also unproductive to go to the other extreme of uh, not enforcing our, our laws, of having summits without conditions, of canceling um, our military exercises and getting nothing in return uh, from North Korea, either diplomatic concessions or constraints on their own large-scale military exercises. So um, like I said, we, I didn't agree with the, the summit strategy, but it did test that hypothesis. So uh, you know, we were no more successful with that strategy than, than with previous strategies. Thank you. And the next question is, in 2017, North Korean representatives tried to sound you out, along with other experts in DC, for insights into the incoming Trump administration's approach to the Korean Peninsula. Are you aware of any recent similar attempts to contact your colleagues who are perceived to be close to Biden administration? Um, the, the, the Biden administration has said they tried to reach out a number of times uh, to 
North Korean counterparts, including through the New York Channel, and, and North Korea was not interested in dialogue. Uh, and that's consistent with, you know, Steve Began, the, the previous North Korea, negotiator with North Korea. He had trouble getting meetings uh, after the October 2019 meeting in Stockholm. North Korea said they were not interested in any more of these disgusting uh, working level meetings and they didn't want to have a summit, et cetera. And, and Began's predecessors, Danny Russell, Joe Yun, Song Kim, all complained that they couldn't, couldn't get meetings. Um, the last couple of years, North Korea... Uh, hasn't engaged in track, what's called track 1.5 meetings like they used to. Um, so, and even when there were meetings where they were supposed to show up, they canceled at the last, last minute. So uh, there, there may be some meetings that people have had that I'm, I'm not aware of, but uh, you know, as we exchanged information amongst experts, um, you know, in the last couple of years, there have been a lot fewer of these meetings and then I think COVID really also put a, a damper on it because uh, they've been very strict on imposing on themselves restrictions on travel in and out of North Korea. So I, I'm not aware of, of track 1.5 meetings. Thank you. And the next question is, the concern for U.S. foreign policy has been focused on the nuclear issue. The cyber element has given the North Koreans another type of weapon to use against the U.S. How should or can the U.S. respond to this double-headed threat? Well, I'm, I'm actually struggling with the recommendation section of this paper on, on cyber right now. Um, so with, with cyber, it's a number of things. It's, um, you know, because it's more deniable, more anonymous, it, it's sort of harder to react. Whereas North Korean nuclear and missiles, you know, they'll do things, but they're not attacking us generally. Um, and when they do a launch, then we, we do a certain number of sanctions or, or diplomatic demarches, et cetera. Um, but with cyber, it's more what's known as gray zone. It, it's like, well, we think it's North Korea or the cyber experts are really sure it's North Korea, but how do you respond? They are much less connected to the, to the internet and, and things. They have far fewer info-centric uh, systems in their country than, than others do. So, it's really a question of how do you respond? Is it, do you do cyber attacks on them? Um, you, you know, the, their banks aren't doing a lot of international transactions, so you can't go after their bank accounts like they can go after ours. Um, so I think it's things, it's gonna have to be multifaceted. It's the, the incoming administration is gonna have to have sort of a whole of government approach where we look at it not just as a Department of Justice or Department of Treasury problem, but because it could have impact on military, we also need DOD, Department of Homeland Security, because they could come after infrastructures, a whole of government approach. You also need, let's say, a whole of country approach where we interact with the private sector, uh, because you've got a lot of cyber experts out, outside of government who, who can identify the attacks that North Korea has done, both through its government agencies and lots of outside group or North Korea affiliated groups, uh, you know, Kim Suki and, and Raptor and all these others, um, that uh, you know, we need an interaction between industry and cyber experts, financial institutions, and then a, a whole of world approach where the, the defenses are only as strong as the weakest link. So if they can get into a bank in some country overseas, well, then they may be able to use that bank as a way of getting into the international 
financial trans, uh, transfer system, et cetera, get into US banks. So it's gonna have to be improving cyber defenses. It's gonna be uh, thinking of how to retaliate. It's gonna have to look at existing legislation. Is it able to address cyber crime uh, as well as against you know, other actions? You know, a problem though with cyber is, you know, you know, you can have a really strong castle defense, but if you've got one guy who's tricked into lowering the drawbridge, they get into the castle. So if you get one guy who, who feels he's clicking on what's a, a job offer link, well, now his computer and then his bank's computer and then other banks' computers are all now infected, no matter how good a cyber defense you have. Thank you. And the next question is, how effective would a bottom-up approach be considering the recent top-down diplomacy that Kim likes better? Well, I mean, some could legitimately say, well, the top-down didn't work and the bottom-up didn't work. So what do we do, medium? Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, Kim, I think, would like a top-down uh, because he, he feels he may get more concessions that way. But you know, there was a, a difference between the Singapore and the Hanoi summits, you know, one where we agreed to a very weak uh, summit statement and then the next where we walked away from what would have been a bad deal. So it may not be so much whether it's top down or bottom up, but whether North Korea is willing to reach an, a, a comprehensive or, or real agreement. So we can argue amongst ourselves as to whether we go for you know, a Hail Mary pass of denuclearization or something short of that, or what benefits do we link to what steps forward? But the problem now is North Korea won't talk at both a summit level and a working level. So what it leaves us with often is negotiating amongst ourselves. So what we often tend to do is uh, we'll offer something either in a diplomatic meeting or publicly, and then North Korea will say, no, that, that's not good enough. And we'll say, oh, okay, well, they haven't said what they want. Uh, maybe we should offer this too. And then we offer something else and they'll say that's not good enough. So we often keep throwing more and more onto the table. The, the other problem is North Korea won't really define what it wants. So during the Stockholm meetings, the US was, was even just trying to say, okay, when you say a security guarantee, what do you mean? Is it, a, is it a statement? Is it a, is it a piece of paper? Uh, how is that different from the 20 some security guarantees we've already given you uh, that were in the agreed framework and the six party talk statements? And, and North Korea refused to define what they meant by security guarantee. Similarly, you know, peace statement, what do you mean they refused? Uh, you say, you know, sanctions are a problem. Which ones? Well, they tend to say all of them. Uh, you say it's the U.S. hostile policy. What do you mean by that? And they refuse to define it. So, you know, over the years, they've defined U.S. hostile policy as everything from military exercises, the presence of U.S. forces in Korea, the, the alliance with Korea, the nuclear umbrella or extended deterrence guarantee, any and all U.S. and U.N. sanctions, any criticism of North Korea, including on human rights, even the constitutionally protected freedoms of uh, speech and media in South Korea. Um, so all of those have been defined as hostile policy. So 
the first step is really just to get North Korea into a negotiating room at, at whatever level, but right now it's at a working level. Thank you. And if you have questions, please type them in the Q&A chat box. So the next question is, given Kamala Harris' lack of experience, how would you anticipate their judging her and what they might sneak in? And, and that's new? I'm, I guess I'm not sure. So the vice president doesn't have a lot of Korea experience, but I don't think she would be the one doing the negotiation. So I, I'm, I'm unclear of the, of the question. So was it Kamala Harris would be, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Sure. Given Kamala Harris's lack of experience, how do you anticipate they're judging her and what they might sneak in? Well, I, I, I don't think she would be involved in the negotiation. So either it would be Biden, if it's a summit level negotiation or meeting, uh, and he's got a lot of foreign policy experience, including chair of the Foreign Relations Committee for, I think, 10 years, uh, or it would be at the working level, whether it's uh, Song Kim or, or Mr. Crittenbeck or you know, other State Department and NSC officials. So uh, it would be one way or the other, but the vice president, I don't think, would be involved. Thank you. And the next question is related to IT. Uh, North Korea has high level IT technology, though. Can international society send outside information into the online network of North Korean elite group? I think it's very difficult. There have been some reporting that uh, after some North Korean action that, that their internet, such as it is, went down for a few days. And people interpreted that as a sort of a US attack like we did Stuxnet against the Iranian uh, nuclear program. Um, I, I think the jury's out as to whether that was something the US actually did. Um, but certainly the, the country and the citizens have a lot less access to the outside world than, than in other countries. Uh, my understanding is there's sort of four levels of, of access uh, to internet or intranet and only sort of senior officials can have access to the outside world. Um, and also North Korea has imposed a lot of very sophisticated monitoring of IT programs and systems within North Korea. So some had thought, well, once there's sort of computer programs or computers in North Korea, well, people might be able to use that to organize demonstrations, et cetera. Well, actually, North Korea has been able to use it to impose even stricter control over, over people. So some examples are uh, you're, you're not allowed to have upload any software that's not you know, permitted by the, the regime. Uh, the system, the, the operating system will periodically randomly take a screenshot of your computer. So if you have something that's forbidden, you could get a visit by the security service. Um, and and they have a way of tracking even any kind of uh, thumb drive you put into the computer is, is detected and it, it, the operating system will put tags on it so it can keep track of who, who saw what. So uh, it, it's harder to go after them via cyber because it's much less uh, access to the outside world. And also they're much less reliant on it for banks and infrastructure and things like that. 
Thank you. We have a couple of more interesting uh, questions keep coming up. Uh, so the next question is, is North Korea just a puppet of China? How much influence does China have on North Korea? Can we cooperate with China to ask them to do more about North Korea? Um, I'd say two aspects to that is uh, we've tried to get China to help us with North Korea, and they've repeatedly shown themselves to be more part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Um, I don't think North Korea likes what North Korea is doing, particularly with the nuclear program, but they've been unwilling to impose the kind of pressure we would like them to or to fully enforce resolutions and sanctions as we would like them to do. What we've seen Beijing do, usually for a few months, well, if North Korea does something very provocative, a nuclear test or an ICBM or long-range test, uh, North Korea, I'm sorry, China will agree to a incrementally stronger resolution. It took us 11 resolutions to get to where we are as opposed to a fewer number because China would drag its feet. And then China will enforce the resolutions for a few months and then they will turn a blind eye and we've seen ship to ship transfers of oil and et cetera. Uh, and we've also been unwilling to go after their, their banks that are uh, committing money laundering crimes. So, for example, in 2017, the U.S. Congress sent a list to 12 Chinese banks, including the four largest in the world, that they felt were committing money laundering crimes in the U.S. financial system. They sent the list to the White House in 2017. They've taken action against none of them. Um, so there are things we could do to influence Chinese behavior. Um, and what we saw with we can influence Chinese banks even to go against what the Chinese government has directed them to do. Um, now, the relationship between North Korea and China. I, I think a common thought is that because China is so huge, North Korea is so small, and that China is responsible for 90 some percent of North Korean foreign trade, that China must control China, uh, little North Korea. It's actually not the case. So. Korea has 5,000 years of history, including a, a thousand or so invasions by its neighbors. Uh, Korea, I think both North and South are very suspicious of its neighbors. Uh, a, a very common Korean uh, saying is uh, that they feel that they are a shrimp amongst whales and when the whales fight, it's the shrimp's back that is broken. So what we've seen with all three generations of North Korean leaders is very critical, very, suspicious comments about China. I think Kim Il-sung even said, we need to be more concerned about China than the United States. So even during the heyday of the relationship between North Korea and China during the Cold War under Kim Il-sung, uh, he was able to play off the two communist superpowers of the Soviet Union and China against each other uh, as each of those two countries was competing to be the leader of the communist world and trying to get as many communist countries in their camp against the other. And North Korea was able to play off both of them against each other to get benefits from both and really be beholden to both, uh, to, to neither. Um, so uh, although it just really seems counterintuitive, little North Korea is able to push back against Chinese influence. Uh, and really they are their own masters as it were. And that even comes up in questions about, you know, how could North Korea come up with these nuclear weapons and ICBMs? They must have gotten it from Moscow or Beijing. No, they, they are indigenous programs, though they may have gotten technology or expertise from others, including China and Russia, but they are indigenous programs. And they were driven 
by North Korean suspicion of its uh, communist allies or, or friends. Uh, in 1962, North Korea saw that the Soviet Union sold out Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, abandoned Cuba in their view. So they must have a nuclear weapons program of them all, their own. And in 1964, when China didn't share the results from its, its nuclear tests with North Korea, again, Pyongyang said, well, we can't trust China either. So again, we need our own nuclear weapons program. Thank you. And the next question is, Chinese-Russian rapprochement militarily and diplomatically would seem to benefit North Korea. How should the U.S. respond? Well, that's far outside of my little lane in the road. Uh, you know, I usually stop working at the, the north end of the Yalu River. Um, yeah, so not only China and Russia rapprochement, but also the strains in the U.S.-China relationship, uh, you know, make things difficult for resolving the North Korean problem. That said, even if we had great relations between the U.S. and China and bad relations between China and Russia, it would still be difficult solving North Korea. Um, you know, a few years back when uh, the U.S. and the international community was imposing sanctions on Russia for its incursion into Ukraine, um, Russia turned to China thinking, well, I can get, you know, offset these uh, sanctions or offset business dealings with the Western world with China. You know, we're both outcasts, we're both communists, et cetera. Um, and yet what Russia found was that China just saw it as an opportunity to strike really tough business deals. So, you know, we'll have to see what level of approachment it is, but even in recent years, it wasn't such that they had total alignment um, uh, on policy. But you know, North Korea is not necessarily something that even if those two countries were at odds with each other, that they would then help us out. Thank you. And the next question is pretty long. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, so one of our attendees saying uh, thank you for an illuminating presentation. Given that North Korea will likely never give up their nuclear weapons, might it be feasible for us to accept North Korea as a nuclear weapon state in return for their agreement to halt further developing or even reduce their existing arsenal? And how would you evaluate the rising pr uh, presence of Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister? Is it relevant enough, if feasible, would establishing a physical diplomatic outpost or even an embassy in North Korea improve relations, notwithstanding all the logistic and security issues that would be involved? There, there are a lot of good questions in there. Um, on the accepting North Korea, um, sometimes we, we trip over semantics on that. So um, if we, there's sort of accepting, acknowledging, sort of two different words. Um, if we were to say we, we formally accept North Korea as a nuclear weapon state, that is seen as very detrimental to the non-proliferation treaty, as well as decades of US non-proliferation strategy, where we try to limit the number of uh, countries that are nuclear powers. Uh, the, the concern would be that if you just basically rip up the, the non-proliferation treaty, it's a green light for Iran and 
a lot of other countries just say, oh, okay, fine, there's no penalties to going nuclear, so why don't we do it too? So there's that, that concern. Also, I think our allies, South Korea and Japan would be very concerned because they would see it as, well, it, it plays into the fear of decoupling where it's, oh, all right, well, you're gonna accept nuclear weapon state or uh, so you're gonna accept the nuclear weapons that can attack our allies or fearful that we'll accept a deal that perhaps limits or caps or removes the ICBM threat to the United States, but keeps in place the, the shorter or medium range or intermediate range threats to our allies. So it's sort of a series of dominoes. Now people will say, well, haven't we accepted them as a, as a nuclear state for years? I and mean, it's clear they have nuclear weapons. I, I guess I would see it as a difference between accepting and acknowledging or even assessing. So an analogy would be if someone uh, is holding hostages inside a house uh, with, with the pistol, a policeman can look through the window and say, yeah, he's got a gun. Uh, I don't accept that behavior. I don't accept that illegal use of weapons, but I have to assess that he has a, a pistol. Yes, he, they have nuclear weapons. Uh, yes, he has a pistol in that house. I'm not accepting it. I'm not acknowledging it in the sense of accepting it, but I assess it and I will take actions to try to remove that pistol or remove the nuclear weapon. So um, some of it's semantics, but I don't think we want to start the dominoes of accepting them because it could have uh, a series of negative repercussions. Um, on the kind of capping the problem, um, it, it depends on what you do or what aspects of it, as well as verification. So we have a really good capability of remotely detecting any kind of nuclear test underground. There seismic sensors all around the world. And, and we can pretty clearly detect very quickly, instantly, when there has been a seismic event. And then because of the characteristics of it, you can quickly determine whether it's natural or man-made. And then you assess whether it's conventional explosive, explosives like in a mining accident or mining event uh, or nuclear. That, that's harder to detect. Um, but, and you can detect missile launches you know, pretty well. But things like production of plutonium, that, that requires a large, pretty easy to find reactor. Highly enriched uranium is a lot harder to find because it's small centrifuges and you can put a, a bunch in a lot of basements or you know, around the country. And you, unless you have on-site inspection, it's really hard to determine if they have stopped production of uranium. Um, some would say, well, prevent, further development or refinement of weapons. Well, okay, if it's testing of missiles, you got that. Nuclear tests, you'll detect that. But how do you detect whether they've done, you know, multiple reentry vehicle testing or uh, creation, et cetera? So a lot of even the capping the problem is you need on-site verification. You can't freeze what you can't see, or you can't be sure that they aren't cheating. So again, with the Soviet Union and the arms control treaties, we had very clear um, statements and requirements for uh, verification, including on-site inspection in those arms control treaties. You know, they're very detailed verification protocols. And in conjunction with national technical means, 
we couldn't say there's 100% certainty they're not cheating, but it, it was able to reduce it to what was not militarily significant. So yes, they might have a nuclear weapon. Well, but they don't, they likely don't have enough that it would have an impact in a, in a, in a war. So, um, you know, we still need verification even for an incremental or a small scale or a cap and, and freeze issue. Uh, with Kim Yo Jong, uh, her fortunes seem to ebb and flow. Um, when she issues a statement in her name, when she's, you know, her statement is on the front page of, of Nodong Shinmoon and others, it's like, oh my God, this shows she's second in command um, because Kim's children, Kim, Kim Jong-un's children are too young to be successor. So she must be the second most powerful person in North Korea. Then, you know, she seemed to sort of suffer, you know, a demotion after the Hanoi summit. Uh, she seemed to be contradicted by her brother after her very strong statements against South Korea with the liaison office that was blown up in the middle of last year, et cetera. Um, and in North Korea, being the second most powerful person is often a very dangerous position to be in. Uh, it didn't work out for Jong Song Tech and, and others. So I think it's Kim is very firmly in control. He's, he's much more trusting of, of a sibling. Uh, whether, you know, if he were to die suddenly, uh, we don't know who the next leader would be. There's nothing in the Constitution. So would it be a family member like her? Would it be the uncle who was in exile for decades, who's now back in North Korea? I don't think he has much of a power base. Or would it be some government functionary? Um, we don't know. Then um, there's a whole debate about whether in a very strictly traditional Confucian society, would they accept a woman, et cetera? Um, the answer is we don't know. So she does seem to have a lot of clout, but I think even if Kim Jong-un has um, delegated some authority or responsibilities, uh, he, he's delegated responsibilities to her and others, but I don't think he's delegated his authorities. Uh, and then on the embassy, uh, we tried before. It was North Korea. The, the, the embassies and a, and a liaison office uh, were going to be um, part of the agreed framework in the 1990s, but it was North Korea that prevented a U.S. facility in Pyongyang, as well as they pulled the plug on a North Korean facility in Washington. So it's something that has often been offered up. Um, but I don't think in and of itself, it's going to lead to improved relations. Thank you. And the next question is, do you think North Korea will continue to continue to ignore and refuse contact with the U.S. until after the next South Korean election this time next year? I think eventually they'll they'll come back to allowing contact with the U.S. It's we don't know when. So just as with the, the next provocation, it's. It's a question of when rather than if. We know they're going to do a provocation. And, and provocation is this unsatisfactory term we use to encompass a lot of things. Acts of war, acts of terror, violations, uh, and even things that might be standard military exercises or developmental testing. So we kind of lump them all together. Um, so you know they're going to do something, whether it's a short range, medium range, or ICBM or nuke test. It, it would be expected they do something major this year. Uh, 
because they feel that it gives them leverage. It forces the U.S. back to the table. It forces the U.S. to offer concessions. And, and as a North Korean defector once told me, they do it to train us like a dog, to train them like a dog. Um, it's often counterproductive. It leads to stronger policies by the U.S. or South Korea than otherwise might have been the case. Um, but sometimes they will combine a highly provocative act with a, well, if you want to reduce tensions, you can come back to the table giving us what we want. So sort of a, we'll raise tensions and we'll offer you the opportunity to buy us back to a lower level of tensions. So I, I think, you know, before Moon has, a, has an election, uh, I think they'll reach out you know, to, to the US and South Korea. It's just a, a matter of, of when and under what conditions. So far, what they've said, including at, at Kim Yo-jong and Kim Jong-un's level is, we're not interested in engagement unless you basically capitulate to their positions. And if we're not gonna do that, but we're willing to have meetings, maybe eventually they'd be willing to have some kind of meeting as well. Thank you. And due to the limited time, we'll just take one more question. Uh, what are China's goals in North Korea besides stability? It seems that they help it evade some sanctions while at the same time enforcing them. I think stability is is a good one. They they say they want a war, they want no nuclear weapons, um, and and I think it's basically just to keep things stable. So they they don't want uh, a a resolution in the sense of unification of the Korean Peninsula under a free and democratic uh, system because they don't want that on their borders. They also don't want to have North Korea collapse because they're afraid of what would happen during a crisis, who's got control of the nukes, could it lead to a war, could it lead to explosion or implosion? Um, you know, what would happen if they lost their closest ally, North Korea? Then would others say, well, you, if you can't keep North Korea, then maybe the rest of us will get frisky and, and push back against Beijing. Um, but so they don't want a crisis, they don't want a, a real resolution. In, in some ways, they're sort of like the, the circus performer uh, you know, spinning the plates on a, on a stick. You have to just keep spinning the plate to keep it stable enough that it doesn't crash. You're not making any progress, but at least the crockery isn't, isn't breaking. And it, it seems like that's what China's policy has been. They keep urging the U.S. and others to offer concessions to North Korea. So if North Korea acts up, they'll usually say, well, why can't you two Koreas get along? And why can't we all just, let's all go back to the table. It's, well, it's only your Korea that's acting up. So I think the stability and just preventing a major problem while hoping to resolve it through some kind of negotiations with the US giving more concessions while keeping North Korea there on their border is, is probably what, they, what they're looking for. Thank you, Mr. Cleaner, uh, uh, for such a very insightful lecture and taking so many interesting questions. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, I'd like to share the AILS upcoming event with Dr. Patrick Cronin at the Hassan Institute. Um, he will be presenting a lecture on fear and insecurity addressing North Korean threat perceptions on his report on April 14th at 4 o'clock. Again, thank you everybody for joining us today and this concludes our presentation today. Thanks very much. Thank you.